Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on the show is Vicky Sato. Listeners may recall, I had Vicky on the show back in March. I thought we had a great conversation in person at Veer Biotechnology in Cambridge. But then I found out later that the audio recording quality was terrible. It was a technical glitch. It was my fault. And I'm sorry that you weren't able to hear her side of the conversation. Now, fortunately, Vicki was gracious enough to take some time out of her busy schedule to try again. And this time, her voice comes through crystal clear. Now, for those unfamiliar, Vicki Sato is one of the biotech industry's true leaders. She grew up in Chicago and is a product of the public schools. She has some interesting reflections on her youth and how she ended up getting into science. At one point, she had the guts to switch fields from plant biology to human biology. And then she did well enough to end up on the Harvard faculty after answering a help wanted ad in science, believe it or not. That's a story you'll want to hear her tell. Beginning in the mid-1980s, and for about 20 years, the next phase of her career was as an executive at Biogen and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. She made her name in biotech in those years. Her fingerprints are all over a number of drugs that are linchpins for those companies today. The last decade or so, she's been a teacher and a mentor on the Harvard Business School faculty and as a board member. As a director of Bristol-Myers Squibb, Denali Therapeutics, and Veer Biotechnology, she oversees strategic direction of companies working on treatments for cancer, neurodegenerative disease, and infectious disease. Having been around this many years, she's perceptive and wise. She has high standards for herself and the others that she works with. She's also a warm person who cares a lot about the next generation of biotech leaders. She stays active because she has a passion for the science And I think you'll hear that clearly now in this interview. Now, before diving in, I want to offer a word of thanks to the sponsors of the show, Presage Biosciences and Harvard Medical School Executive Education. For more than 200 years, Harvard Medical School has shaped the design of medical school education throughout the world. Now, Harvard Medical School is bringing its expertise to organizations that seek to drive growth and innovation in healthcare. Harvard Medical School designs and delivers customized executive-level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science. Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are already leveraging new customer insights gained through Harvard Medical School. Programs include first-hand insights into physician decision-making, patient perspectives, real-world workflows, and the business of medicine, advances in technology, biomedical science, and patient care that may present new opportunities for your company, discussions on trends in patient-centered care, data science, genomics, digital health, policy and reimbursement, and exploration of -of state-of-the-art treatments for specific diseases. For a free consultation on how your organization can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School, listeners of this podcast can go to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec. Now, I'll say that again. 
For a free consultation on how your organization can gain insights from Harvard Medical School, go to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec. Now, just about everyone in the cancer R&D world is thinking about combination therapy and complementary mechanisms of action. Not only do drug developers need to see proof of their biological mechanism as a monotherapy, but also in combination with other treatments fast emerging on the scene. This gets complicated in a hurry, especially when you think about all the possible mechanisms, dose regimens, and tumor types that need to be taken into account. Companies today often have to burn through 30 to 50 patients in a phase one clinical trial to get the answer to these important questions. That takes a lot of precious time and money. Presage Biosciences is working to improve this approach. They are now working with biopharma companies to use Presage's patented microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. This microdosing tool can allow for a half dozen or more combinations of drugs to be injected directly into a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. This is a way to run multiple experiments at once to get the maximum information to guide drug development on time and on budget. The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Now, join me and Vicky Sato for the long run. With me today is Vicky Sato. She's one of the pioneers of the biotech industry, and uh, I'm really pleased to uh, to have you here with me today on the long run. Good to talk to you again, Luke, and welcome back. <laughs> okay, so first thing is, uh, I've, I've got to say, uh, apologies are in order. Um, we sat down back in March for a recording on this show, and uh, I had a technical glitch on my end, which caused poor audio recording quality. Um, so I want to apologize to you and to the listeners. Um, you don't get many do-overs in life, but in this case, uh, you were gracious enough to, uh, to let me try again. So thank you. I'm happy to do it, and I know you've had a great adventure in between, so I expect the conversation might be even a little different. Yeah, well, the reason I uh, I didn't fix it was because, uh, many of the listeners know, I was running off to Mount Everest, <laughs> and so now I'm back. And uh, and But I think uh, many of the lessons that uh, we covered in that first conversation are, are timeless, and, and I look forward to going back into it uh, again here today. Now, one of the things that I really uh, I find interesting about you and your career is that it divides, I think, pretty neatly into three distinct phases. You started off as the academic scientist uh, at Harvard on the faculty. Then you um, moved into the biotech industry as an executive at Biogen and then Vertex. And in this latter um, phase, you've been an educator slash advisor slash mentor. Um, at Harvard Business School, uh, and then involved with a number of companies. So I, I think each of those is very interesting, and, and I want to ask you about um, what you do, what you've done in, in those roles. Um, but before we get there, I'd like to start at the very beginning. Uh, and so, just where were you born and raised? So I was born in Portland, Oregon, um, in the Pacific Northwest, but I wasn't raised there. My uh, family left there shortly after I, I was born, and, and drove across, across the country to Chicago, and I was raised in Chicago, a product of the Chicago public school system. And uh, what did your mom and dad do? 
Uh, well, my dad um, was a repairer of watches, and my mom was an accountant and homemaker. Any siblings? No siblings. No siblings. Only child. So you're the only child. And um, I think uh, I mean, you, you are of Asian American descent. Your parents, were they immigrants? Um, no, my grandparents were, were immigrants. They came to the United States at the turn of the uh, turn of the last century, actually. I recently found the uh, the original um, immigration records from the boat that, that uh, my grandmother came over on. So um, they settled on the west coast of this country, and as a consequence of settling in in Oregon, my mom's family is from Oregon, and my dad's family is from California. They were interned during the Second World War into the camps for the Asian, for Japanese Americans. And one of the reasons we ended up in Chicago was because Chicago was the headquarters for the War, the War Relocation Authority, which was the government organization that was responsible for finding jobs for Japanese Americans when they left the camps. And because they were headquartered in Chicago, Chicago became a place where it was relatively easy for them to to find jobs for the Japanese Americans that uh, that were released from the camps. Interesting. So now, and you came later, of course. You're, you're a baby boomer born after the war, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. And your parents, it sounds like they're starting over, seeking a fresh start. Well, starting over because they had to start over. Uh, as, as you know, as a consequence of that Japanese-American relocation, all of the assets were seized. And so there really wasn't much to go home to. So I think for, for both my parents' families, they weren't married at the time either, um, it was, you started over because you had to start over. Uh, it was um, not a, it was a challenge, it was a challenging time, you know, challenging time. Now you said you're a product of Chicago public schools. Which part of the Chicago area? So I grew up in a part of Chicago called Uptown, and it's on the east side near the lake, and is very much uh, an inner city. For many, for many years, the many of the years that I was in, in school, it was an area that was viewed as sort of the, the north side analog to the south side of Chicago, which was a largely African-American ghetto. The north side um, economically challenged area was uh, an er- the areas around Uptown, which is an old, an old part of Chicago and grand in many ways, but had fallen on, on difficult times. But it was also an area where um, minorities were allowed to live. And what kind of values would you say your parents tried to instill in their uh, their only child, their daughter? Uh, it was pretty simple and very strong. It was all about education and the fundamental belief that education was the the path through which economic growth and improvement um, can happen or, or could be found. So this was it was about getting the most education that you possibly can. I think they sacrificed a lot in in the pursuit of my getting the best education that I could. And I have to say that as as um, difficult as growing up in the Chicago public schools has been described, um, I really felt like I got a, a really good education there. Um, 
wasn't the easiest place to get educated, but it was the teachers were were inspiring and terrific, and I think laid a really important groundwork for me and for my interest in in science. But it was really, you know, the message from my parents was get the best education you can. We will do everything we can to make sure you get the best education that you can. And that's the path. That's the path of upward mobility and security. And that stuck. That stuck. How did you get interested in science? Was it during these years? It was absolutely during during these years. You know, it's my family, my extended family, and we had a very close extended family. So even though I'm an only child, um, we lived very close to aunts and uncles and their offspring and cousins. So we, it was a a big extended family. There were no scientists in in the family. My generation was the first to really get to college. Um, so my interest in science really grew from having some really terrific teachers going back to grade school. It was a sixth grade, um, sixth grade science teacher who was known for doing Mr. Wizard-like experiments. Uh, I think probably before Mr. Wizard even. And, and then some really excellent teachers in high school, high school biology and high school chemistry were, were led by teachers who were very, very committed and who were very forward thinking about science and the importance of science. You know, look, I think the other thing that was happening at, at the macro level was this was a time shortly after Sputnik, and the country's government was scared about the Russians overtaking the U.S. in science. So a lot of federal dollars went into improving the public education curricula in science. It's when advanced classes in physics and 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 advanced placement curricula started to evolve. So I think I was a lucky product of federal dollars being pointed toward improved and experiment-driven science education. And it was a tribute, I think, to what the power of federal initiatives to improve education can do if they're successful. Well, in the broader culture, if I understand that period correctly from my reading, um, there was a value placed on scientific knowledge, uh, that this was a respectable field for you to go into. Um, I, I, I don't ma- imagine people in your family or extended family thought that this would was disreputable in any way. Like, oh gosh, you've got to become a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> no, although uh, although being a doctor was um, certainly a uh, a possibility, just because medicine was interesting to me. But I think absolutely, science was viewed as uh, not just a respectable thing to do, but a, a really important, a really important contributor to, to society. Uh, and that was that that was part of the coherent, if you will, support and direction for getting an education. And getting an education in science was uh, not a bad thing. So you go off to college. I think Radcliffe is where you did your undergrad? It is. What experience was the, the, the most formative one for you there? Uh, well, it was, it was as Radcliffe Harvard undergraduate educations can be an incredibly humbling experience. So I um, struggled certainly with the science classes that I was taking. But once again, I had, you know, I took Chem 6 which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a course taught by Professor Leonard Nash in the chemistry department. And it was my freshman year, and it was a big class, and it was full of people who'd gone to much better schools than I had and who were really, really good at science. You know, Westinghouse scholars, the whole 
the whole bit. Um, so trying to survive in this class was a, was a wake-up call. But Professor Nash's enthusiasm for science, his just ability to make things like stoichiometry and thermodynamics interesting was incredible. So as challenging and as frustrating as that introductory class was, it 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 really sort of stimulated my my interest in in staying the course. And then in biology it was a really exciting time because Jim Watson was was on the faculty in biology. The he taught introductory biology, taught part of introductory biology. Um George Wald was teaching Natural Sciences 5. It was a, it's a legendary course in terms of teaching life sciences. And it was a time when science, biological sciences, was changing so much. The, the work on gene regulation, the fundamental work, was being done in the labs by Wally Gilbert and Mark Patashny. Matt Meselson was doing incredible genetics. So the overall environment in science at Harvard and Radcliffe at that time was remarkable. This would have been late 60s. Yep, late 60s. And yeah. So in the midst of all of the, the social and political upheaval, there was just an incredible environment for really bleeding-edge molecular biology, people who were shaping and defining the field of molecular biology, some of which got retold in, in the eighth day of creation, was was all around me. And that was that was a privilege. So this was a very exciting time, kind of that, that dawn of molecular biology, and you got hooked, it sounds like. That, that this is what you wanted to do. I did get hooked. I have to say I also got hooked on art history and philosophy, um, but as my parents kept pointing out, it wasn't obvious how I was going to make a living doing those things. <laughs> very practical parents. <laughs> So you decide to uh, to pursue this career in science. Uh, you, you went west. Well, I stayed. You know, I got my undergraduate degree at, at at Radcliffe, and then I stayed here and decided not to go to medical school and stayed and got got a PhD at, at Harvard as well. And then I went west. Okay. West. So it was the postdoc west. years at Berkeley right. and Stanford. At Berkeley and Stanford, yes. What was the key question, or maybe set of questions that animated you? in those years that, that you thought might drive your early scientific career? So it changed. I got my degree, actually, in a lab that was using genetics to study the pathways of photosynthesis. And I was really interested in the genetics. I, I was less interested in the photosynthesis, but I was really interested in the genetics as a, as a tool. And so my degree was actually in you know, plant genetics and, and the light reactions of photosynthesis. And I went to Berkeley to pursue that in a chemical biology lab. Um, it wasn't even called chemical biology in those days. It was called chemical biodynamics. Um, and continued to work on the light reactions of photosynthesis. But after two years of that, I decided that my longstanding interest in human biology and disease was really not getting satisfied. So I switched fields between Berkeley and Stanford and moved into immunology to work in the lab of Len Hertzenberg. And that that was a, um, a really driven choice on my part. Immunology, cellular immunology was another area that was coming into its own. The understanding that lymphocytes were responsible for the adaptive immune response, the idea that... that um, B cells and T cells 
were needing to collaborate to to make an immune response. These were all fundamentally new ideas, and being part of this scene was really exciting. So the postdoc years at Stanford in, in the Hertzenberg lab were really formative for getting me into human biology, human disease, and uh, fundamental questions of how do we how do we protect ourselves physiologically? But moving from plant biology to human biology, that's not easy. And immunology, I mean, this is hard stuff. You you were once again diving into the deep end of the pool. That had to take some guts. <laughs> I suppose I suppose it did. I do remember doing cold calls to labs in the San Francisco area saying, hi, you don't know me. I have a PhD in plant biology, but I'm really interested in immunology. Would you consider letting me work in your lab? Um, and Len took, Len took me on. But it was exactly that. I think what was fantastic about this was the the fact that this was a time when the really fundamental principles of of cellular immunology were being laid. We we understood a fair bit about the biochemistry of antibodies, but we still didn't we did not know how diversity was generated. We didn't know what kinds of receptors were on T cells. We were starting to have an inkling that cells talk to each other through some molecular signaling network, but it was sort of every day was a new fundamental insight. Lens Lab, of course, Lens Lab at the time was in the midst of developing the fluorescence-activated cell sorter. This really does make me feel like Methuselah, I suppose. But, you know, science has been moving fast over the last few decades. Uh, so Lens Lab, because of this prototype cell sorter, was um, a magnet for young and older cellular immunologists to come and study. So it was really a community that was exciting to, to be in. You dive in into this these early days of of immunology, cell biology. We're we're asking and and just beginning to answer some of those fundamental questions. Um, now you're very much on a path uh, to become uh, a, a tenure track faculty, right? Right. Uh, and you, that's uh, and how did you end up going back to Harvard? I answered an ad in Science. <laughs> I realize that sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but about I'd been by this time four years in the Bay Area, and I realized, as I've said to others, that I was an East Coast neurotic, not a West Coast neurotic, and I wanted to get back, um, back east. And what's the difference between an East Coast and West Coast neurotic? That's that's a um, it's, that's a longer that's a longer discussion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So you answered an ad in science. I mean, it just, you know, most people's image of this is like, it's not that easy. Well, you know, maybe it was easier than, I don't know, but you know, you look in the, you look in the, the one ad section and, and my old department was advertising for an assistant professor uh, with a background in, you know, cell biology, broadly speaking. So uh, one of the things I learned from my mom was, you know, take a risk. If it's something you don't have now, all that can happen is you won't have it later. But if you don't try, you'll never know. So um, I answered the ad, sent in my CV, made a couple phone calls, like to my ex-thesis advisor saying, "This, you know, if this is ridiculous, uh, let me know. But I'm interested in the, in the possibilities. And so I went, you know, went out, gave a seminar, did all that stuff and got offered the job. And so then I was and I was much to my shock and amazement an assistant professor at Harvard 
a job that most of my professional colleagues assured me was a career killer. But nonetheless. Why is that? Well, because in those days, two things. One was junior faculty didn't get promoted to tenure. And there was exactly one woman who'd ever been tenured in the history of Harvard science, biological science, and she had just received tenure like a year before. So the likelihood that I was going to climb the ladder successfully at Harvard was vanishingly small. And on top so was of that, the consensus that that maybe you should go somewhere else uh, and make your name in science and then take a tenure job at Harvard? Well, Is that know, it was just it was just the why would you go there? It's in addition to the statistics being bad, it's an it's full of arrogant people and junior faculty are treated like you know expletive deleted and it's not going to be supportive and you know can't you, you know really you really, you really want to do this. Um, but I did, and it's a long and complicated story about how it all unfolded, but it actually all turned out really, from my perspective anyway, really well. I, I, I wasn't completely irrational about this. Um, uh, I knew that if, that a faculty position at Harvard, a junior faculty position would still enable me to attract really talented grad students and postdocs if the lab was doing interesting work and if I could hold up my end of things that teaching in this community, which I'd done a little bit of as a grad student, obviously as a teaching fellow, would be an exciting and challenging opportunity. And it was a risk I was willing to take. And I'm so glad it turned I did. out to be a place you, you could do the teaching and research. I could do that the you teaching, wanted to do. Right. I could teach. I got my lab funded, you know, with NIH grants as one does, had great grad students, a couple of terrific postdocs, and and maybe the unexpected upside was I had senior faculty colleagues who were incredibly supportive, who really were positively supportive of the work, who were intellectually challenging, and who, you know, kicked me in the ass when I needed kicking. It was, uh-huh. so that part of the the dire warnings was completely untrue. This this idea that, you know, one would be ignored and misused and all this other stuff. It was, it was a wonderful community to be part of. Now, I did see in one interview, I, I think you gave, where you mentioned later on, I think this may have been a factor later on, that, there, that you saw a kind of a glass ceiling there in academia. Now, you didn't mention this when we talked a couple months ago, but w- was that an issue for you? And, and did you end up seeing more opportunity uh, in industry? So, complicated answer. Was there a glass ceiling? Yes. I, I'm not even sure we called it a glass ceiling in those days. Um, but as a just as a factual reflection of that, I when I was a grad student uh, in the department, I was the grad student representative to the very first committee on the status of women at Harvard to really try and explore and understand why the statistics were so bad. But by the time I returned as an assistant professor, the statistics were not much better. Um, so as I I said, there were probably I think. In my class, so to speak, of assistant professors, there were three or four women, um, more than had been around before at any given time. But I think we were all pretty realistic about the fact that the path up and over to tenure was going to be strenuous. Um, and, and it was. There just wasn't much, there wasn't much precedent. And it 
I think counting on it just was not what was an would have been an imprudent thing to do. So I mostly enjoyed what I was doing. So this is um, late seventies, early eighties. Yep. A lot of things are going on in the wider world of biology. I mean, the recombinant DNA wave is there. The beginnings of Sanger sequencing, gathering more information about Max, proteins and we, we genes. We call it Maxim Gilbert sequencing, actually. <laughs> Maxim Gilbert was the th- was the thing at Harvard. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, okay, but then uh, biotech takes off. You know, Genentech goes public. Nineteen eighty, Bi- Biogen was a, just getting started there, late seventies. And you, you, you know, fellow faculty member Wally Gilbert was one of the co-founders there. So um, a lot, a lot of things are going on. What, um, what, uh, what was your view of of this? Uh, industrial wave. Was this something that you were curious about and wanted to be not, a part of or at first, or no? Not not at first. You know at at, at you know when when one gets a, in those days when one got a PhD in biology, the expectation was you were going into academia because that's what there was. So it was either you if you wanted to apply biology you went to medical school, if you wanted to do basic biology you stayed in academia. As a let's say in contrast to my colleagues in the chemistry department who were routinely recruited by pharmaceutical companies and chemical companies of, of, of different sorts and for whom careers in industry were as illustrious as careers in academia. They were just different paths. For biologists, the expectation was to stay in academia, and I had all of the academic arrogance about doing that, about keeping my science pure. So it wasn't something that I paid a lot of attention to, but my interest increased and my curiosity increased because I was teaching an immunology class with Wally Gilbert. And Wally was in the midst of starting Biogen with Phil Sharp and, and other colleagues. So the conversation around what this company was aspiring to do and why was he involved in a company just became a more intense conversation. I don't know whether you've ever seen, Luke, this um, this episode of a TV show called The Scientist. No. Uh, so it was a documentary that was made in the 70s. No, late, around 1970. And it was, it was put on, I think, by ABC. I, I can't remember exactly. But it, it was to, um, to acknowledge the publication of The Double Helix. And it was uh, an episode that ran on network TV about the mysterious workings of scientists in the field of molecular biology. And it was it featured people we know, like Jim Watson and Mark Potashny and Wally Gilbert racing for the repressor. And in that, Wally, there's a discussion in which Wally says to his grad students, oh, you don't, you don't want to go into industry. Serious, serious science happens in, in academia. And we had all watched these as, as, you know, as grad students and as undergrads, we'd watched this and, and that was the mantra. So for Wally, particularly, to be talking about not just talking about, but actively engaged in starting a company, and Mark Potashny was doing the same with Genetics Institute, was kind of an eye-opener for me. And I, I got, it's impossible not to be curious, impossible not to be curious about a sea change in what biologists do and the environments in which biologists could do their science. 
but it was very controversial uh, on, on that Harvard faculty. There were many people that saw this as uh, turning to the dark side. Um, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> there was like a revolt, I think, when Genetics, Genetics Institute got started by Mark Patashny and Tom Maniotis. Um, but uh, so which camp were you in? I, as I often am, um, I was an agnostic. I think I would have stayed more insularly academic if I weren't really involved with teaching this class with, with Wally, because Wally had become an important mentor for me scientifically. He, he um, we, we talked a lot about the research I was doing and the fact that he was as, that he had pivoted 180 degrees in his views about the importance of, of molecular biology and its application to this new industry made me just curious. And, you know, that coupled, as we talked about with Mark Patashny doing this, David Baltimore had already been involved with collaborative research here. So people, scientists that I really admired and look, looked up to were jumping in. They, they were not holding themselves aloof from this. And as another colleague, and as another colleague said to me, you know, when, when you've got, when you watch that moment in time when a scientific discipline can can drive economic output, it's just, you, you have to pay attention. And so I paid attention. Presage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. Why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. You can test multiple combinations in a single experiment, helping keep your drug development plan on time and on budget. This device is being used in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And Harvard Medical School designs and delivers customized executive level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science. Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are already leveraging new customer insights gained through Harvard Medical School. Okay, now grab your pencil for those of you who like to take notes. For a free consultation on how your organization can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School, listeners of the Long Run Podcast can go to a custom URL. Go to HMS dot harvard dot edu slash long run exec and if you tell them you heard about this opportunity from the long run podcast i will be most grateful so i think it was 84 when you got the call from biogen how did you end up making that move over to industry because I, I think you you dove in with both feet. I, this was leaving the faculty and taking a full-time job, right? It was. I had done it. I, I'd st I had stuck my toe in the water um, before. I had a, I was, at that point, I was applying for academic positions at other universities, tenure, tenure positions. Um, but I also had a sabbatical semester coming, and so I got engaged as the very, very, very junior partner to a diagnostic startup with two colleagues from, from MIT. And much to my surprise, I 
really liked the conversations that I had with my first venture capitalist, my first patent attorney, all of these these firsts. And I I really found the intersection of science and business way more interesting than I ever, ever, ever thought it would be. And so I spent a year actually maybe a little bit more at this this diagnostic startup. But I also realized it was a diagnostic startup that was focused on the agricultural and, and veterinary industries. But this kind of like photosynthesis was not really where I wanted to be. I really wanted to be in human disease. So when the call came from Biogen to to set up a new group there, I couldn't pass it up. Who actually made this call to you? Well, it was an interesting process. Um, Richard Flavel was the chief scientific officer, and he was, um, the, the, this was a complicated position that was going to sit someplace, either within research or possibly even within the burgeoning drug development department, which reported in to, um, to Seth Rudnick, who was a physician. So I went and, and started a very lengthy interview process there that extended over many weeks. So was this a, a smooth transition or were there some, some bumps uh, you know, I don't remember. I'm sure there were bumps. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there were bumps. The first bump was probably that they hired me and said, great, you can come here and lead this new group. But by the way, there's a hiring freeze. So you can't actually hire anybody. Uh, but but I, I will tell you that I found the whole, the environment of the company, the quality of the scientists in the company, um, Richard Flavel himself, I, just people were so stimulating and exciting and, and impassioned about what they were doing that the bumps were kind of, I don't know. The bumps were irrelevant. I've forgotten about the bumps. Well, in those days, Biogen didn't have a. Um, it didn't have any products on the market. Um, I, how many people did even work there? So, Biogen in those days was a complicated company already. It was post IPO. It had started in Geneva, so there were labs in Geneva, Zurich, Ghent, um, an academic lab in Edinburgh, and then this lab in Cambridge. The lab in Cambridge was kind of the new kid on the block. Uh, but there were hundreds of people at Biogen. And a far-flung research enterprise. A far-flung so you've got to right. travel around, meet these people, manage was, them. It was amazing. Um, really, the, the team in Geneva was incredible. We had um, installed the first thousand-liter fermentation capabilities here in Cambridge. There was a clinical group that was excited about testing these new molecules in, in medical settings. There was a lot going on. There was probably too much going on, as was the case in those days with young biotech companies. We had a lot of projects. I mean, we were in areas that were not just pharmaceuticals. We were doing herbicides, vaccines, energy from biomass, ascorbic acid biosynthesis. It was... It, it was very much that first generation of biotech companies who were exploring the limits of what recombinant DNA technology might do. A little bit all over the place, but also a really good way to stretch yourself in all kinds of directions, probably that you hadn't even thought about stretching before. Absolutely. A absolutely. I just, it, it was every day. <laughs> I know people say it sounds trite, every day was a new adventure. But it really, that's what it was like. That's what it was like. So um, you you stay at Biogen for eight years? Nine. A little, it was a little over nine. It's transitioning to become more of a, a what we think of as today, uh, a, a medical 
focused biotech company, a drug developer. The development of Avonex, Tysabri, the die was cast in some of those early days. And you, you had your fingerprints on, on these programs. What were some of the big learnings? This is a formative experience for you in industry. And you start working your way up the ladder. So what did I, so I, you know, the lessons, they were big um, gulps of, of um, lessons to be learned. One of them was just learning how to manage people. That was probably the biggest one because in, in academic labs, labs are relatively small. And as you know, also, academic labs manage to different degrees, but mostly pride themselves on being pretty flat egalitarian enterprises and meritocracies. Biogen, as one of the early biotech companies, had imported a lot of this culture appropriately, this, this sort of academic culture. But with the arrival of Jim Vincent, who was the CEO who came from, from industry, was a businessman, not a scientist, to help turn the company around because we were doing so much, we were spending money faster than we could bring it in. Um, Jim came in and, and really taught about management. And I remember metaphorically and maybe actually curling my lip about this, but over the, over, over the course of, of several years, he really taught me the importance of being an effective manager, which really has to do with setting the right, setting the right vision, picking the right people, making decisions, and, and having a strong plan for converting scientific discovery into economically valuable assets that could be sold. So this, this, this organizational um, skill set was a, an important part of the transition. I think it's also the time, and it was at Biogen, that I really got excited about what it means to have an effective interface with science and business. Because you need both to make these companies, and it, it's obvious to say that now. But the push and pull between business people and scientists which doesn't go away, really. Um, but that push and pull could determine the success or failure of, of these young and rather fragile companies. So this was, these, the, these were some of the big lessons of, of Biogen. It's really where I felt like I grew up as a professional there. And I grew up there because I had colleagues and mentors who were incredibly generous with their skill and their knowledge and their willingness to share. You had to get used to a different set of goals. No longer was the goal to get a paper in Nature, although I'm sure you did some of that, and that probably felt good and um, might have been worth a round of high fives. But you know, getting that I and D into the uh, through the FDA and you know, getting some data from early trials. I mean, that's probably more what Vincent had in mind. Absolutely, and and we used to have endless discussions about what it meant to be focused and what it meant to manage risk. Um, but it, as I said, for me, it was a time of great maturation. And the, the people that I had around me and the scientific staff, which was also undergoing you know, a real evolution as well, uh, was just, it just made for a very exciting and formative time. It, and God knows it was, you know, there were, we got close to running out of cash. Uh, so it was also my first experience going on a roadshow and, and telling the story to people on Wall Street. It was just... Um, something new every day. Not all of it good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I didn't realize that you did that at Biogen. This would have been when you were VP of research? Yes. 
Yes, right. Interesting. So you got some exposure to uh, the street there, but then Josh Boger calls. Yes. From Vertex. Now, this was pretty early days, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was probably, I don't know, Josh and I probably started talking in 1991. The reason, it wasn't that Josh so much called as he and I shared um, a very important board member in common, Jeremy Knowles. And Jeremy at one point leaned over to me and said, you know, I may have to go off the SAB of Biogen because my very first American grad student is starting a company and he's asked me to be on the board and I have to do it. I have to do that for him. And I didn't know who Josh, I said, well, I didn't know who Josh was. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. You can't, you can't do that. You're important to us. You're important to, to me. He was an important mentor for me. Uh, we have to be able to work this out. And he said, well, I don't know if we can work it out. Um, I said, well, what are they doing? And he said, well, they're doing chemistry. And I said, we don't do any chemistry. This is, you know, this is, this shouldn't be a problem. Let's talk. So it was really in trying to resolve a potential conflict over a key advisor that Josh and I got together. And I can still remember my first meeting with Josh where I went to the labs in Alston. I don't know whether you ever had a chance to visit those, the early place there, but Josh and I sat in the conference room and he went we sat in the dark for like three hours while he went through 88 slides in a carousel. Ah, oh, those were the days. And, <laughs> um, and I think there were two data slides out of the 88, but the rest was all about his vision for Vertex and how Vertex was going to take on pharma in their traditional technical area, not with big protein molecules, but with medicinal chemistry. And it was, it was mesmerizing, absolutely mesmerizing. The vision for structural biology. Absolutely. This, this had to appeal, this appealed to you as an academic scientist. <laughs> it made sense. Rational drug design. Rational drug design, right. I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the um, I don't know whether it was my academic scientific training or just my scientific training, but this, this idea that making drugs is hard and it's foolish not to use every piece of scientific information that's relevant in the pursuit of making such a drug seemed to me both insanely simple to articulate and insanely crazy not to try to do. So, um, but we talked for we talked for some months before, you know, I, I actually made the, the the move because I was a big molecule kind of girl, not a small molecule kind of girl, and um, but there was something about the energy of that company that drew me. And I wanted to learn about medicinal chemistry, which was not, uh, which is going to take me a lot longer to do at Biogen than if I moved to Vertex. Here again, you're unafraid to uh, take on a, a, a completely foreign challenge, um, one that many people don't, don't make, might be afraid to make. How many people were at Vertex at that time when you decided to to make the move? My recollection was mid-60s. Okay. So it had raised some venture capital. Was it public oh, at that had, point? Yes, they, they went public during that bubble in the early 90s. So I think they, like some companies now, went public very early on in their, in their, in their history. So they were newly public, you know, newly public when I joined. Okay, so you probably looked at this and, and thought what? I mean, it's, it's at least got, you know, some runway to, to test this idea. It had some runway. It had really smart people. I don't, you know, it was also a chance for me to to spread my wings 
both scientifically and organizationally. Because I was head of research at, at Biogen, but at Vertex, I'd, I would be the chief scientific officer and, and ultimately head of R&D as well. So it was a professional growth opportunity. Big new responsibilities. Exactly. Did, did you get a raise? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> you got some stock yeah. options. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I think I got. I think I got the inverse of a raise, but um, that was. It, it just. It kind of didn't. It sounds ridiculous for me to say this, but it kind of didn't matter at the time. Vertex. Now this is quite a ride. We could probably talk the rest of the hour about this. <laughs> but <laughs> or we could just you, read Barry um, Worth's book. <laughs> we 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 could. So um, what what uh, I asked the same question about Biogen, but what do you think was the the key? growth experience for you? You're there at Vertex through mid-2000s, 2005, I think. 13 years? Yeah. 12, 13 years? More than that was 14, I think. In some ways, it was a continuation of what we talked about it at Biogen. One of the things that appealed to me, obviously, was the science. This was a way to bring structural biology together with chemistry, together with biology, and ultimately medicine. So this included disciplines that I hadn't embraced before in the pursuit of better medicines. The other was, it was pretty clear to me that in this small company, don't forget, it's, we talked about Biogen was big by the time that I joined, big by comparison. Josh and his key leads, and especially you know his colleague, Rich Aldrich, were building a culture at this company that was, that was apprehensible, tangible from the moment you walked in the door. And I wanted to see, I wanted to see how to do that because it's so important when you're building young companies that at that that you focus not just on the wonders of the science at hand, but that you actually deliberately build a a culture, an atmosphere, an ethos, whatever you want to call it, that has the attributes of making that science successful. And Josh was doing that. I don't, I don't know how even conscious he was of doing it, but he, it was clear that he was doing it. He was, he was doing it hire by hire, person by person, project by project. And this is, this is how we do things. This is, this is our way. Right. Our habits. Our value system. Um, and it, I, I wanted to sink myself in that. I wanted to see it up close. I wanted to participate in it. I wanted to learn how to do it. And it's, you know, not the sort of thing for which there's necessarily a recipe, but there are practices that are more high, highly correlated with success than other practices. And it was, hap it was happening there. You could feel it. So not everybody, you know, agrees or agreed at the time even with what the culture was, but it was clear to me that there was a culture, it was unapologetic, and it was driven. Yeah, it was uh, driven, I think is the right word, going back to Barry Worth's book. Uh, that comes through loud and clear. Now, at that time, Vertex 2005, when you left, you, you were president, so you were working directly with Josh, overseeing every aspect of the company. Then you decide to start your next phase. This is what I call the teaching and advising and mentorship phase. What were you hoping to accomplish in this next phase? Uh, well, I had I had actually a very specific accomplishment goal here, which is going to sound 
maybe a little silly and altruistic, but always remember that I grew up in the 60s when those things were smiled upon. <laughs> but it was at a time, 2005, when I left Vertex. And, and I have to say, I had a great run there. We, The hepatitis C program, this, the, the beginnings of the cystic fibrosis program, as well as many others, were just, it was just scientifically an incredibly exciting time. But it was also a time when, as you will recall, the pharmaceutical industry was viewed with incredible disdain and distrust, much worse than it is today, I'd say. And the teacher in me kept thinking, this is not good because we need better ways to make drugs. We need to be more efficient. People are right to criticize us. We need different business models for how to create companies that can do this well. And with a reputation like this, we're not going to be able to attract either bright young scientists or bright young business people into this business. It's kind of like saying, you know, would you like to come and make cigarettes for me? Um, so, and I was, you know, and after 14 some years, I was also getting a little restless myself for and thinking that I was at an age where I had, you know, one serious gig left in front of me. So if I was going to do something, I should do it sooner rather than later. And that got me back to Harvard, ironically enough, teaching those first few years, teaching both science and business. It's interesting to hear you say that you think the reputation for pharma was worse then in the mid-2000s than it is now mm. in the late 2010s. You know, I was actually having this conversation with my wife recently, and I, I actually brought up the Vertex example, like with Kaleidico. This is such an effective drug. This is a little bit of an aside, but bear with me. This drug is expensive for obvious reasons for a small group of patients with CF, but it's extremely effective. It was. It made a big difference, and I don't think you hear as much criticism about drugs like that. Uh, you hear more. I think more of the problem people have with pharma is when you know you charge these exorbitant prices for drugs that really aren't very good, or that have been around for a long time um, and are off patent, yeah. and that you're just see, see an economic opportunity, not necessarily a medical opportunity. So yes, right, right. But but so coming back to your decision to go to Harvard, you're you're thinking in the in the broader societal context that maybe there's a way to, to bring along some of these bright young people and and into this industry which has a lot of capacity for good at its best. And I think so. That's yes, absolutely. And I think also a, um, a frustration that the paint with which our industry was being painted in 2005, some of which was absolutely deserved. Um, but I think that paint dis discounted heavily the, the motivations that drive most of the people that I knew who worked in companies like this, big or small, that the, the scientists, the business people, um, the marketing people really are committed to making important medicines and getting them to people, at least the, you know, the, the, the ones I've been privileged to, to meet and, and work with. But in 2005, we were being castigated and, you know, with some truth for having extremely low productivity, for losing, uh, for failing more often than we succeeded, for charging a lot of prices for drugs that were really not differentiated. And so all of that wrapped together put us in the bottom quartile, maybe decile for a while, of industries evaluated by the public. And that's not a reputation that attracts smart, ambitious, idealistic young people. No, when you went to Harvard Business School, I, I think, uh, I mean, you could look this all up, but people were going on to Wall Street or into consulting. Right. Not this, not this area. 85% nope. of HBS grads were going into financial services or consulting. 
um, healthcare was the tiniest of initiatives. And at a time when Boston and Cambridge were emerging as the hotspot on the planet for, you know, biomedical innovation. So it should be fertile ground for inspiring not just the traditional scientific community, which has always been big here in Boston and Cambridge, but also in principle, the business community. And, and you need both. I'm a firm believer that, that to create enterprises that are sustainable and that really deliver products of value, you need great science and you need really inspired business people. And so that's your job there at HBS to kind of bring these two worlds together. You're teaching again. And I've spoken to many of your students from over the years who, who love that experience. I'll, I'll come back to that first question. What, what did you actually do there at HBS or set out to do? So I, I, I set out, well, actually, I, I was invited to come because HBS of its own accord, there were some faculty there who were really excited about what they felt to be some of the unique business challenges of building enterprise around high-risk scientific innovation. So I got asked to join this little working group, and the goal was really to create a curricula, a curriculum and an experience for business people interested in taking on that particular kind of challenge, creating a business out of science, um, so that we could, in principle, train the next generation of leaders for science-driven businesses who could really shape or maybe reshape how we commercialize innovation, how we fund and manage risk, how we communicate scientific advancement to a public that is unfortunately becoming increasingly scared of, concerned about, ignorant in the areas of science. So the challenge is, in some ways, while our reputation as an industry has improved because our output has improved, um, the business and the scientific challenges have only become greater. This um, is a different kind of business. People just aren't used to uh, evaluating companies on things other than profits and loss. And quarterly, <laughs> quarterly. <all kind> of <laughs> quarterly, yeah. I mean, this, this takes a long, long time. It has to be evaluated on all kinds of different criteria. There's incomplete data <laughs> every step along the way. You're never done. Right, you're never done in this business. Even after the FDA has approved your drug, you know we know. Thankfully, there aren't many, but we know of drugs that have had to be pulled from the market because of unexpected safety concerns in the broader population. You're never done. Right? You, you you never walk away from this and saying saying it will sell itself. Now, uh, during this phase of, of education and advising, you've uh, elected to join a number of boards from big companies to small companies. I could list a few of them on the summary of the show, but it's Bristol-Myers Squibb, Denali Therapeutics, Veer Biotechnology are a few uh, that I think are current. How do you decide which companies and which people to spend your time with these days? My, my two bellwethers have been the same for a long time, and, and they've been themes in this conversation. One is, is, is the scientific challenge, is the medical need great? Is the task worth taking on? Is the game worth a candle? So is the problem worth solving? And the other is the team. Who are the people that are, that are engaged in this, or who are the people that I and others would like to see engaged in this? So it's, it's those, those two things are probably the biggest 
factors for me. I, I need to feel that the science that's being tackled is important and important from the standpoint of medical impact and that the team is great or can be great. And that's true. When I joined the board of Bristol-Myers, it was a company that was very troubled, to use the, the, I guess, the popular phrase, was under a deferred prosecution for borderline sales and marketing methodologies. But it had also been a company that had a proud history of, of innovation in pharma. And so, and I had never been involved in big pharma. All I, you know, all I did for the 25 years I'd been in biotech was shoot arrows at pharma and deride their their failures. So the opportunity to be part of big pharma and to see and contribute to it, it was was irresistible. And I am incredibly proud of, of what that company has accomplished in the last decade. Uh, similarly, Veer and, and Denali are tackling really big problems, and they're problems that, that most pharmaceutical companies have chosen to walk away from right now. And I think that's okay, because I think the kind of innovation that's required to actually make significant progress in neurodegenerative disease and in the kinds of persistent, hard-to-treat infections that we're facing uh, may come faster from more nimble organizations. So, you know, science and team. Really interesting way of looking at startups. Last thing I want to ask you, Vicki, was a question that your former colleague Josh Boger suggested. And he, he said, if you think back to your days as Biogen head of research when you were just getting started in the industry, what would you advise that person? In other words, what do you know now that you didn't quite know or appreciate back then? Josh always, you know, finds the right question to ask. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think back then, I really didn't appreciate the complexity of the process because it, it's because this is a this is a hard business, and weaving together the persistence, the the constant innovation, and a group of people who can stay with the problem or who can contribute and go and make room for other people to keep solving the problem, the, the complexity of keeping, of creating something whole out of those moving pieces is just way harder than you think it's going to be. As a consequence, of course, when it happens, when it all comes together, it's, it has the quality, it does have the quality of magic. And there's an energy and a, um, a gratification that's really pretty unique. But I think for anyone starting out in this business, the real complexity and the challenges of making this happen are, it's, if you, if you saw them clearly, I'm not even sure you'd start, as has been said about other endeavors. So thankfully we don't. But um, that, that sense of realism and that sense of steady as she goes it has, has been an important part of growing up, if you will. Well, and I think about back to what you said earlier in your career, you've uh, you've never been shy about venturing outside your comfort zone, trying to learn new things, learn about this complexity that that makes up the industry. But as you you know, at now at this phase, it's also about re- having some humility and recognizing that nobody knows it all, nobody does everything by themselves. This really is a team sport. How can you bring some of those? right people on board to help you achieve that goal. Absolutely. And I think that what's really cool for me now is 
to see this next generation of scientific and business entrepreneurs who are really dedicated to solving these problems and who really are are driven by improving outcomes for for tough diseases that that is just so exciting for me the the opportunity to sort of hang out if you will with really young really talented very very committed people it it is uh, bodes well for the future you know we have we have in the last 10 years done i think exerted more change in terms of what what we call a medicine and what diseases we're starting to bring to heal but this next generation is even even more technologically savvy broad energetic committed it's just it's it's great. I'm extremely optimistic. Well, those companies that you were a part of earlier on, Biogen and Vertex, have um, have certainly made big impact on on their patient populations, and it would be pretty amazing if some of your current crop of companies have a similar kind of impact in their areas. Vicky Sato, thank you very much for joining me on the long run. Luke, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks to Presage Biosciences and Harvard Medical School Executive Education for sponsoring. And thanks for listening. Tell your friends about the show on your favorite podcast app or on social media. See you next episode.